Yeah, well, good morning. So it's good to be with you this morning. If you're at home with us live stream, we're so glad that you are here. Let me remind us all, if you, if you came in and didn't grab the elements on your way in, maybe you got through a door where you didn't get one of these, we're gonna have the Lord's table today, take communion as part of our worship, and if you're at home, we'd love for you to have some elements at home there that you could join us in partaking the Lord's Supper. So just a reminder for you. Turn with me to Philippians chapter three. Philippians chapter three is where we're gonna be today as we continue our journey through the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to this church in Philippi. And as you're turning, let me do just a bit of housekeeping that is actually gonna relate to one of our last points today. And it's this, I want to invite you into today a new initiative that we're beginning, we're really excited about as a church, and it's a prayer initiative. One of the questions we've been asking is, God, what are ways that you might call us to be bound together as a church family and move forward? And what are some simple ways that we can see that happen? And of course, the obvious answer to that is that, that God would guide us into prayer together. So we want to invite you into what we are calling a journey of prayer for the next year. And what this looks like is we would love for you to grab one or two other folks that are friends of yours and commit to praying together once a week. Just commit to praying together once a week. You could do that by phone. You might do it on Zoom. You might do it in person if that works for you. But to gather once a week to pray. And if you sign up for this prayer journey, what we're going to do is we're going to push out to you some content and ask you to be praying about these things specifically. Everything from different scriptures and psalms to prayers about things going on in our country, things going on in our church, our values as a church, and advancing in those. So you'll see over the course of a year, regularly different things that will say, hey, pray about this this week. And I just want you to imagine for a second the power now of a church that is regularly, not just all praying separately, but all praying together in the same direction. All asking God for revival, all asking God to move in our, in our city, all asking God to save and redeem the lost, all asking God to change our own hearts and to move us forward together. We thought that might be a journey worth going on together this year. So I wanted to invite you into that. You can sign up at, let me make sure I get the website right, I always got to go back to my notes for this part, uh, westshorefree.org slash prayerjourney. And I, yeah, we've got it right there, westshorefree.org slash prayerjourney. You can sign up today. And let me tell you, even if you, if you maybe don't have anyone that you know immediately, hey, I'll connect that person and pray. If you join us on your own, that's good too, all right? We would love for you to be getting these emails. And we're not gonna inundate you with them. We're just gonna push them out once a week so that you are getting then, hey, pray about this this week. Uh, that journey, you'll hear more details about it and we'll be touching on it as the year goes by. But I'd love to invite you to being a part of that. I'm excited to join this journey of praying together over the course of the year. Hope you will be too. So I said it relates to one of our last points. You're gonna see now today that as we turn to Philippians chapter three, here's the, the very simple, one of my favorite passages. In fact, my life verse is in this passage. Uh, the thing I want my life to be about above all other things and this passage, the, the big idea is simply this, that we have a duty as believers to fight for a daily growing, unrivaled affection for Jesus. A daily growing, unrivaled affection for Jesus. That he is to be everything to us. And we'll find in Philippians 3, uh, verse 10, my life verse is, I wanna know Christ. You know, for a while, when I was a kid, somewhere around, I don't even remember, probably junior high or something, somebody introduced me to this idea of like, is there, is there a scripture that you might look to to sort of point your life in a direction? And uh, they use this term, a life verse. I never heard of that idea, and I, I didn't really know kind of what that should be. And I found myself reading through my Bible, and I came to this verse and I said, that's it. 
that's what I want my life to be about. I want to know Christ. And of course, when I was in junior high, I kind of missed the last half of the verse, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. So I got tricked into a life verse. Now I just, I, I found that's what I wanted my life to be about. And you know what was interesting is as years went by and other people that I'd meet, other believers that I just really admired and loved, I would find them saying, oh, you know, Acts 2.42, I count my life, uh, 24.2, sorry, I count my life of no value if only I may proclaim the gospel, finish the race that God has set out for me. I say, oh, maybe I got it wrong. Maybe that should be my life verse. And then I hear somebody else say something, oh, maybe that should be my life verse. And I just, God just kept bringing me back, no, this, this is what your life should be about. Everything else is downstream from this. Just know me. All the work you'll do for me, all the, all, all the faithfulness and growing towards holiness in your life, Everything will stem from this. Want me more than you want anything else. Want to know me. And that's what Philippians chapter three, verses one through 11 are all about today. That we have a duty as believers, as followers of Jesus, if that's you today. Let me not make that presumption. Some of you may be exploring your faith in Jesus and asking who is God. And we're so glad that you're here to, to explore that with us. But for those of you who are followers of Jesus, you have a duty to pursue greater affection every day an unrivaled affection for Jesus. Now, you remember, that's one of our five themes, this idea of unrivaled affection for Jesus. We said that this book, Philippians, is all about a Christ-centered life. And we, we identified five themes that we're gonna see throughout the book over and over again. In chapter one, it was all about gospel ambition. If you remember this, living to advance the gospel. That was this theme that just kept coming to us again and again, right? And then we saw in chapter two, some, some touching on the idea of what does it mean to be steadfast in the faith, to stand firm, Right? And to be united with other believers. Those, those are two more themes that we saw of the kind of five that Paul keeps hitting on. And now we come to chapter three, and it's really a crescendo of this whole book, if you will. The, the whole book crescendos now in this passage, if you will. If, if this were like a, a musical or a, a, a piece of music, right? It would be building and building and building to this point. This, the rising action has now come all the way to this point, to chapter three, where he just lays it out straight for us in a very simplified version of like, you need to have an unrivaled affection for Jesus. You need to want him more than you want anything. And you need to know that anything that you might need to lay down to get more of him is worth laying down. There's nothing that you should cling to that would keep you from him, keep you from wanting more of him and growing in him. So let's look at the text together. Let's look at these 11 verses. Let's read them together. And then I wanna talk about how do we grow how do we grow in unrivaled affection for Jesus? And I've got four things from this text to share with you today along those lines. So here it is. Beginning in chapter three, verse one. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, 
I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Isn't this a beautiful simplification, simplification of the purpose of our lives? Sometimes we make it so complex. We make it so difficult. We make it so complicated. And he's saying, know Christ. Know him. With every moment of every day, with every breath, want more of him. Pursue and fight for because you're going to have to fight for it. Yes, you know that, church? You have to fight for it. Fight for more satisfaction in him. Fight for more pleasure in him. Fight for more enjoyment in him. Want him above all things. Now listen, let me say this. The text says, knowing Christ is of surpassing worth. That's what it says. For the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. But I've said that this text is about Daily growing unrivaled affection. And let me tell you how those two things relate. And maybe it's obvious as I read those things to you when it says, I want to know Christ. You say, well, of course, that's about having affection. But of course, you could read this and you recognize that at the beginning, it seems like what Paul is saying is all these things that I used to put my trust in to make me right with God, now I've let go of those things and it's knowing Jesus that has made me right with God. So perhaps we might look at it and go, well, this is really just about how we enter into a relationship with him. It's about coming to know him, and that reconciles us to God. And because we've done that then, that's what he's talking about when he says, I want to know Christ. I want to be justified by his blood on the cross. But I would argue he's getting it way more than that. He's not just saying, I want to know him in sort of an initial way. He's saying, I want to know him more every day in a growing way. Can I show you where I see that in the text? Number one is this, Paul's situation is such that he is predominantly, at least at the first, talking about the fact that he used all these other things to justify himself. Hebrew of Hebrew, the nation of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, as to the, as to the law, Pharisee, as to zeal, persecutor of the church. In fact, all these things, that's how, that's how I knew I was good with God. And then he says, but then I let all those, I considered all those things a loss compared to knowing Jesus when I met him. I saw that he was the only way to be justified. That is primarily what Paul is talking about at the outset, is how he came into relationship with God through Jesus. But he's writing this to the Philippian church, and the Philippians are already in Christ. So when he says to them, watch out for these people who want you to go back and start to justify yourself by these things that you do, rather than by faith, in Jesus and knowing him alone, he can't just be saying, Philippians, this is about how you first come to know Jesus. He has to be saying, this is about a danger that is coming to you, that keeps coming to you, that you want to justify yourself by works rather than by faith. And so since I'm writing this to you, Philippians, we know that he's not just talking about an initial knowing of God through Jesus. He's talking about a daily growing relationship with God in Jesus. Are you with me? Does that make sense? And then the second clue is this, verse 10. After saying all those things about you know, the law and his righteousness under the law, and then, but he counted those things as a loss compared to knowing Jesus. What does he say in verse 10? It can also be translated, he says, that I may know Christ. That can also be translated, my goal 
is to know Christ. That's a more literal way to translate that verse. My goal is to know Christ. In other words, what he's saying is, I know him. I've considered everything a loss compared to coming into relationship with him. And now what's my goal? My goal is to know him. Well, if he meant something that he already knew him initially, then he wouldn't be saying my goal is to continue to know him. Are you with me? Does that make sense? All right, so he's getting at this unrivaled affection that he is to have for Jesus where everything else is considered a loss compared to daily growing in a knowledge of Jesus. So I wanna make sure that we're clear about that. Here's, here's how I would compare that. One of the, the saddest things that I feel like I sometimes hear, and it's intended to be romantic, is when a married couple, have you ever heard someone, maybe you've even said this, and you know, don't hear me bashing on you here, but maybe I can redirect you a little bit, because I hear sometimes people say, I love my spouse as much today as the day I married them. Do you know that's a sad statement? You should love your spouse more today than the day you married them. Because you are to have a daily growing affection, unrivaled affection. No one else should come between you and your spouse. You should have an unrivaled affection for them as it pertains to other human beings, right? That is to be unrivaled. No one else is to interfere with that. I say that at weddings. No one shall interfere with this covenant when I'm officiating a wedding, right? We are to not get in the way or interfere in any way with this covenant. We should be saying, I love you more today than the day that I married you. More today. Can I, can I uh, admit a guilty pleasure? It's really cheesy. Anybody like Kenny Rogers? The gambler, all right? The gambler. Kenny Rogers has a song called Through the Years. Does anybody know this song? Can I tell you, I mentioned this on Thursday, and a friend texted me, and he said, my son, who's about eight years old, said, Dad, can you put on that song Pastor Trent was talking about in the car? And he said, sure. So he puts on Kenny Rogers through the years, and literally he said, the next words were, Dad, this is awful. Please turn it off. It's like, yeah, that's about right. Super cheesy, but do you know what gets me about this song? Is the whole song, a husband saying to his wife, I, I can't remember what it was like before we were married. I can't, and I love you more because we've been through the years together. Don't make me sing it to you, right? Through the years, you've never, you know, I'm not gonna do it. I love that song because it's actually a, a biblical vision of marriage, right? Which says, I, I love you more today. You more now. We are to pursue a daily growing affection. Sometimes I find that we in the church we entered into a relationship with Jesus in sort of this, maybe, maybe it was like a white hot kind of a way, you know, we're like, we're passionate for him. And over the years, that wanes. Over the years, it, it sort of ebbs. And we think to ourselves, it's okay, it's okay, I'm, I'm in him, I'm in him, and maybe we're content that we know we'll be in eternal life with him. And that's true, amen to that. But we're not to just be content, church. We're not to be content with a, a static affection for him. We're not to be content with a waning affection for him. We are to fight to have a greater affection day in and day out for him. Are you with me? That is the purpose of our lives, that we would grow. All the service you'll do to him, for him, all the, all the ways that you will serve him in this world, they will ultimately, all the disciples you'll make, all the righteousness you'll grow in, it will flow out of, it will flow out of a desire to know him. That's how service doesn't become dead and cold and mechanical. It's how it is life-giving and life-breathing. So now let's ask this a question. Let's ask this question. How do, we, how do we grow in a daily unrivaled affection 
for Jesus. And I wanna give you just a couple of thoughts here. The first one is this, and I've already touched on this idea of justification. Here's the first one. Understand the importance of justification by faith for a daily growing, unrivaled affection. Understand the importance of justification by faith. Now let me explain that word justification for those of you who may be less familiar. Justification is this biblical term, this idea that we are made right with God. Like, like a judge would say, you're, you're declared righteous, right? You're good, you're not guilty. We, we've been declared right with God, not by anything that we've done, but by believing in Jesus. That's what justification by faith means, if I can just put it really, really simply, right? Because the Bible talks about that. We need to be justified before God. We need something to make us right with him, and the only thing that can do that is faith, faith in Jesus, faith in his finished work at the cross, faith that he has risen from the dead, faith that his payment for my sin is enough. And I don't need to add anything to that. That's what we talk about when we talk about justification by faith. Now let me take you back to verses two through six here. When Paul says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, and then he says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. What he's getting at there is that there's this temptation that's being brought to the Philippian church by these people who are, by all, by all intents, claiming Christ and saying, you don't just need Jesus, you need Jesus plus the law, the Old Testament law. You need to obey the law to be circumcised and to follow these certain rituals and patterns. You need that and Jesus in order to be justified by God or before God, to be right with God. You need both of those things. And Paul is vehemently arguing against that. He's saying, no, you're not justified by any work. You can't add anything to what he's done. In fact, if you try to add anything to what he's done, you don't get where you need to go. He's the only one who can do the justifying work. So that's what we talk about when we talk about being justified by faith. And then look what Paul says next then in verses seven, after giving the laundry list of all the reasons why, if anyone should be able to be justified by their works, by something they've done, it's him. He's not shy about saying that. Like, I fit the bill better than any of you, I promise. And if I myself don't look to be justified by works, but know that I can only be justified by faith, then you shouldn't try to be justified by works either. That's kind of the, the idea of the first six verses here. And then in verse seven through nine, when he gets into this beautiful explanation, he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. The things he's saying he's counting as loss, he's not saying everything in your life is worthless and everything in your life has no value. He's saying anything that would keep you from knowing Christ is a loss. He's using accounting terms here, actually. For you accountants, you're gonna love this, right? He's using debits and credits, this idea, right? So he's saying anything that I used to consider a credit, I now understand is a loss. It's over in this category, this column. The columns have flipped for me. All the things I used to look at and say, these things give me value, these things make me right with God. Now I recognize those were a loss because they actually did the opposite of what I thought they were doing. I thought they were getting me God, and in actuality, they were a loss. They were keeping me from God. And all these things now that I would have considered foolishness, I persecuted the church because I thought it was stupid and foolish to believe that the death of a man on the cross could somehow make me right with God, and that now has come into this category of gain, and everything else has gone over into the category of loss. That's what he's talking about when he says, I count everything to be a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And then verse nine brings home this idea of justification by faith. Here's the connection. It says, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God 
that depends on faith. In other words, here, here's what he's saying. He's saying the reason all of those other things are lost is because they couldn't make me right with God. So primarily have in mind, in particular here, those of you who are not followers of Jesus, you know, those of you at home, those of you here in the room who are not in Christ, the thing that you need to hear and understand is that you cannot be made right with God in any other way than to believe in Jesus. There's no other way. All of those other things, when Paul says, he's giving you an example, he's saying, if anybody could justify themselves by being good enough, by doing enough, that would be me. He's better than you are. Wherever you are, he, he was better. He's saying, I couldn't do it, neither can you. Those things are a loss now because they can't give you the righteousness. That's what verse nine says. They can't give you the righteousness you need. That's how you're justified before God is you're given righteousness. And it's only faith in Jesus that can give you that. If you believe in him, he will give you his righteousness. It will be given to you, placed within you. It will transform you from the inside out. Everything about you now will become new. You will be changed. It's this beautiful, beautiful truth that the scriptures point us to. But friends, hear me now. Here's why, here's why this is a, a tool towards unrivaled affection. Because if you start off down the wrong road, you never get to the final destination, right? I mean, like if you, if you, have, a, if you have a destination you wanna get to and you plug it into the GPS and the GPS starts taking you east and you needed to go west, you're not gonna get there. Even if you just started kind of veering in the wrong direction. I always think about this, this idea of justification by faith when I think about some time that I spent in China. I was there with a group of students and as part of our time there, we were teaching uh, for what, we had some like wreck time at this camp that we were at in the middle of nowhere, China. I'm talking about like in the, I mean, the middle of nowhere, up near Mongolia, right? And so we had this afternoon, we're gonna teach these Chinese kids who don't speak English and we don't speak Chinese, we don't speak Mandarin or Cantonese, but we have a translator. We're gonna teach them kickball. Well, kickball has all the same rules as baseball. Have you ever, well, many of the same, have you ever tried to teach someone baseball who's never seen or heard of baseball before? It's really complicated. Baseball is this really complex sport, right? So we're trying to explain like, uh, we're trying to explain like force outs versus like tag outs. We're trying to explain like strikes and balls and you, you get four balls but three strikes. Well, why? I don't know, you just do, right? And we're trying to explain like if you get this, you can throw it over here and that will get them out. But like, well, if you catch it, they're already out. If it's on the ground, then you gotta pick it up and you can't, they're not already out. And the kids just like are looking at us like, you people are crazy. What is this game that you play, right? And so we're explaining it, and I finally get comfortable that I think we've explained enough. I, I think we're there. All right, let's play, you know? I got a bunch of like junior high and high school kids, and they're just ready, they're eager, they're like, please, can we just, can we just get to it already? All right, great. So we, they actually go out and get to the positions that we explain. There's some people in the outfield, there's some people in the infield. I feel like that's a win, right? The pitcher takes the ball, rolls it, and here comes the first kid, and he kicks it. When he kicks it, it goes right towards the first baseman. So what does he do? He looks and proceeds to run to third base. Because all we said was you've gotta go around the bases. And he thought, well, I'm not going that way. I'm going this way. And I thought to myself, we explained everything except the fact that you gotta go in order, right? And here's why I think about that. Because you can know all the rules and follow all the rules, but if you start in the wrong direction, you never get home. You never score the run. If you start with anything other than justification by faith, you never get home. It's the only thing. 
it's the equivalent of saying, well, you know, uh, I, I'm going to believe in Jesus and I'm going to make sure, that, and, and baptism. I'm going to add those two together and that, that will do it. Nope, you're headed to third base. I'm going to do this. I'm going to be part of the right group. Of, I'm going to go to the right church. Do you think that justifies you before the Lord? Nope, you're headed to third base. Jesus plus anything gets you nothing. But Jesus plus nothing gets you everything. Justification by faith grows unrivaled affection. Now here's the second, here's the second thing. See the real danger of trying to be justified by works. Now we're talking about, let me hit the flip side of the coin now, okay? See the real danger of trying to be justified by works. I've, I've already touched on a little bit because you're, you're trying to be justified in any way by works, right? You're headed towards third base. Now if before what I was saying is look, you don't even begin the journey, friends, unless you're justified by faith. But how many of us who are in Christ and are on this journey also know that it's tempting to start justifying yourself by works again, to start kind of backpedaling a little bit and to say, I know that I'm justified by faith. I mean, my guess is for many of you, I would pray that if you've been in this church for a while, you would know to say justification by faith alone, right? I mean, we absolutely, amen, right? Like, I don't think I'm gonna get a lot of pushback when I preach that. But subtly, there are ways that we start justifying ourselves by works, and we just don't necessarily realize that we're doing it. So I, I want you to hear me, because the danger here is that it will absolutely shrink your love, your unrivaled affection for Jesus. And here's why. Because, when we, because the ultimate source of wanting to justify ourselves by works is pride. And when we try to justify ourselves by works, that pride is a, a love-swallowing pride. It is like a tapeworm that eats all the nutrients of the food that we take in. No matter what good things you do to serve Christ, no matter what you do, if you have, a, if you have anything in you that wants to justify yourself by works, it will eat whatever that good thing is that could produce affection for Jesus and unrivaled love for him, and it will produce love for yourself and more pride. That's what it will do. You have to be radically diligent about crushing any way, any sense that you would ever be justified by your works before God because it will become a, friends, I promise you, it will become a love-eating disease in your heart that will produce more and more pride and less and less love. Now listen, that's not to say that when you've been justified by faith, it's not to say like, okay, um, it's not to say that you haven't, that you haven't sort of begun to put pride to death, right? And also, let me say this. For those of you who are in Christ, it's not to say that, um, it's not to say that there's no, uh, well, how am I, I'm sorry, I'm losing myself here. I wanna make sure I get this right. When you come to Jesus by justification, by faith alone, it doesn't mean that there is no pride left in you, that all of a sudden that it's just gone. But there's a big difference. I want you to see, there's a big difference between pride in your heart that is on the run because you're actively trying to put it to death and pride that you make a home for. And pride that you make a home for, you make a home for it when you allow any justification by works to be attached. Jesus plus anything becomes a home for pride in your heart. If only Christ can save me, then he gets all my affection. If I have any part in saving myself, then I keep part of my affection for myself. And my pride has a way of making that grow. So let's, let's ask, what are some common ways? Because I'm talking uh, sort of, I feel like, too generally, and I wanna get very specific here. Because you have to ask, 
This is a subtle thing, so how do I recognize when it's taking place? How do I recognize if I, who would claim I am justified by faith alone, I know that, I'll preach that, I'll say it in my mind, and I preach to myself in the mirror in the morning, right? But how do I know if I'm starting to, in subtle ways, justify myself by works? What, how do I know if that starts to maybe take hold? And let's just look at what Paul says here. Now, friends, again, this is not the only thing uh, that all of the scriptures have you know, messages for us here, but we're just looking at what Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11 says here. And here's some common ways that we slip into justification. Paul seems to point to two things in himself, and I think they're still as prevalent today for us as they were for him. The first thing that you note in Paul's list of things is his affiliations, the people he was affiliated with, maybe his family background, right? I'm, a, I'm an Israel. I was raised in a religious family is kind of what he seems to be saying. We, we, we were Hebrews of Hebrews. He says elsewhere, I'm a son of Pharisees. We don't know if that literally means his father was a Pharisee as well as he was, or if he's using that more metaphorically, like I'm a son of a Pharisee. But we find that in Acts chapter 26 when he refers to him that, himself that way. But he seems to put a, there seems to be this way in which before he knew Christ, he's putting all this stock in where he came from, who his people were, what affiliations he had. And I still see the same thing. Friends, can I tell you that regularly, sometimes when I will ask folks, How do, tell me about your relationship with Christ, the answer to that question sometimes, far too often actually, is, well, I grew up in a family that went to church. Can I tell you something in love? That doesn't mean anything has nothing to do with knowing Jesus. I'm so glad. That's a good thing, by the way. It's a good thing. To be, I'm raising my kids in church. Wonderful thing. That doesn't mean they know Jesus. Doesn't mean for one second they know Jesus. They know him when they surrender their lives to him and place the weight of all their trust on him. And that's true for you and it's true for me. Having the right affiliate, you, you might even sort of, well, I go, to, I go to West Shore Free. That's a good church. I'm affiliated with a good church great that has nothing to do with justifying you before the lord jesus nothing whatever ties you we have this weird way of sort of saying i'm a part of the right group whether it's my family background or the church or the social circles i run in it might even be the political parties you like or don't like whatever like we have this way of thinking about ourselves as part of this group and because i'm part of this group i'm good and friends can i tell you if you in any way put stock in a group you belong to and think that makes you okay with God, you are wrong. And a great indicator is if you can't ever identify where that group you're a part of is off base and counter to the things of God, right? If, if my family has some aspect of it that is not Christ honoring and I can't see that, that's a good indicator that I'm putting my family over and above. My affiliation with them is something that I've clung so dearly to that I think it justifies me before God in some subtle way. I can't identify, oh, that's not, that's not Christ. Praise God if you've got a family that everything they do is Christ-honoring. That's awesome. I haven't met that family yet, so I'd love to meet your family. If you can't identify where the groups you affiliate with are, are counter to the ways of God or askew from the ways of God, like, there's a, that's a danger. I, just wanna, I wanna help you see that. The second thing that Paul talks about is not just affiliations, then he goes on to his accomplishments. That's the next thing. I was, as to a zeal, a persecutor of the church, he's, he's giving the laundry list, and he's saying, this is what I would have offered to God. Like, if I stood before God, this is what Paul would have said. He would have said, God, I'm, a, I'm a, from the tribe of Benjamin. God, I'm an Israel. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. That's, that's, I'm your people. 
And then, not only that, God, I mean, imagine saying this before God. Now, this is Paul. He's saying, not only that, God, I persecuted those vile people that wanted to do away with the law. And not only that, I, I was zealous for your law. I was blameless in following every little jot and tittle of this law. I, was, I, I followed it to the letter, to the T. I did all this. These are my accomplishments, God, here. This is why I'm good with you. Friends, there is no accomplishment There is no accomplishment that can achieve the righteousness of God. It is beyond your best works, far beyond. Our best works are filthy rags before the righteousness of Christ. Our best effort. And so anytime we start to look to our accomplishments, God, I've served you. Can I give you a a hint as to when this may be happening in you? Is if you find yourself... sort of making a claim upon God, and maybe not out loud, maybe it's sort of in your own mind, but you might say, God, I've done all this for you. How could you let this happen to me? When you think God owes you because you have served him faithfully. God, I preach week in and week out. How can you let that thing happen in my family? But God, I have shown up every week in children's ministry to teach those kids how is it that this, how is it that you could allow that? Friends, God owes you nothing. Praise him that he's given you the righteousness of Christ. He saved you and redeemed you. He owes us nothing. And yet pours out blessings and favor again and again and again. It's remarkable. It's unbelievable. But it's all undeserved and unearned. It's just his goodness and his mercy and his love. And when we encounter difficulty, He uses it. He shapes us. But if we find ourselves sort of saying, I've done this, therefore I should get that. That that may be an indicator that you're looking towards your accomplishments to justify it. Those are just two. There's a lot of other subtle ways it happens, but those are the ones Paul points to here. The ones I wanted to point out to you. Now, before we move to the table, let's touch on two other quick things. Those are the ones I want to spend the lion's share of. Here's two other things Paul gives us to grow unrivaled affection for Jesus. The first is this, determined to fill all your service to him with resurrection power. So in verse 10, when he says, my goal is to know him, then what does he say next? And the power of his resurrection. So he's, he's equating those two things. He's saying to know him then, or one way to know him is to experience the power of the resurrection. Now he's not talking about there just the fact that we will be raised one day, Uh, that our bodies will be raised from the grave if we're dead when Jesus returns. Our bodies will be raised and we will be with him forever. Praise God for that. Yes, somebody say amen to that. Yeah, so that's gonna happen. If we're alive, our bodies will be glorified. We don't even have to die before it happens. That would be cool too, right? But either way, that's not the resurrection he's talking about at the end. He's talking, nor is he talking about the resurrection of our souls from death to life. He's talking about the fact that those who are in Christ have in them the power of the resurrection moving through them. And so when he says, when you serve me, serve me in resurrection power. Don't serve me in your own strength. Serve me in the power of the resurrection. Let me give you two ways I think that looks. Now that's sort of a subtle idea, but he's one, you have to know that that's possible. You have to know that the very power that raised Jesus from the dead now moves in you, not just to raise you, but to move through you to see others be raised. And there's two indicators that I was thinking about this week that I think when I know I'm serving him in resurrection power, 
versus in my own strength. And by the way, when I serve in my own strength, that doesn't produce the same kind of unrivaled affection for Jesus because it doesn't begin sort of from square zero in the way that serving from resurrection power does. When I experience the power of the resurrection moving through my service, I'm always astounded. And when I'm astounded, I'm amazed by him. And when I'm amazed by him, my love for him grows. That makes sense, right? That sort of, you know, one plus one is two, right? So that's sort of the idea here. But let me give you two indicators of resurrection power in your serving. Number one, is it begins with prayer. If you want resurrection power in your serving, your life has to be undergirded by prayer because what prayer is is petition to God and saying, you have to, you have to do this. And you're begging him and you're calling upon him because you recognize this is not something, you called me to this, I'm gonna go do it. If I do it in my own strength, you know, not much is gonna happen. But if you will come, if you will fill it, if you will bring life through it, the whole idea of resurrection power is from death to life. So the kind of service that begins empty-handed before God. I, look, I got nothing really of value to offer. Here, here. I'm empty-handed before you. And he said, I'll fill up your hands and now I'll pour it out through you. Right? That, the second indicator of resurrection power is patience. Patience. That we don't rush in and presume to do the work of the Spirit. That we let the Spirit do the work of the Spirit. I was thinking about this this week. I'm reading through Acts in my quiet times. And I was just astounded again because I'd forgotten about this and I'd not remembered it. We got into Acts chapter 23. And just a couple chapters before, God had said to Paul, he's on these missionary journeys. So he's out on his third missionary journey. And uh, actually he's in Jerusalem at the time. And then there's this whole hubbub that happens. And he gets moved to another city, Caesarea. And he's going to be on trial. And so he's explaining himself to the governor of the region, which is, his name's Felix. And he explains what happened. Felix says, yeah, he, this guy hasn't done anything wrong. I mean, that's what Felix essentially says. And then the very next sentence, God had told Paul, I'm gonna send you to Rome. You got work to do in Rome, so I'm gonna send you there. And then the next sentence at the end of chapter 23 is, and Felix, wanting to do a favor for the Jews, kept Paul in prison for two years. I was thinking to myself, wait, what? I had forgotten about that two, I just kind of skip over that two. Could you imagine two years of your life just, life just being written away in one sentence? Yeah, and then this happened. Then two years later, this happened, right? And Paul, the, I have to think, if I'm Paul, I'm sitting in prison, I'm thinking, you know, Lord, you told me you had work for me to do in Rome. I'd love to get to that. Love to be about that now. So why am I in prison for two years? There, there's gotta be a better way to go about this. But the absolute patience that God's purposes are being accomplished, and they will be accomplished. Do you know that if you'll serve him in resurrection power, you can be patient and trust the spirit to move and to do the work. That person you're praying for to come to faith, trust, wait, be patient, right? Don't rush in and try and answer every question and deal with every difficulty. Just be a person who moves with grace and patience through life, knowing that God's at work, God's at work, God's at work. Resurrection power is flowing through you and moving through Christ's work in a variety of ways. Last thing we see, we touch on this a lot, it feels like, because the scriptures touch on it a lot. If you wanna grow unrivaled affection for Jesus, don't run from suffering for Christ's sake. Don't run from suffering for Christ's sake. He says, I wanna know Christ, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of what, church? Sharing in his sufferings. I want to share in his sufferings. Suffering has this clarifying effect here's the thing, the reason suffering can grow unrivaled affection, I'm talking about suffering in the name of Jesus, and remember that 
that Paul said, anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a promise to us. That's just a, it's just a given. If we believe the Bible, then we believe that. If we believe that, then it should come to us. Yes? Fair enough? All right, so we believe the Bible. The Bible says, if I desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, I will be persecuted. So that's coming. And when it comes, my job is to not run away from it. I don't need to seek out martyrdom. It will come. Right, not necessarily martyrdom, but I don't, you know, persecution will come, so I don't need to go running after it, trying to, trying to grab it. It'll come, just be faithful. And as it comes, but my job is to not run from it when it comes, to not shrink back when it comes. And here's what suffering does. It has this clarifying effect to remind us what matters and what doesn't. And the other thing we can trust is that Christ will be with us in our sufferings. He may not deliver us from them in the timeline that we would hope, but he will be with us. And when he's with us, our affection for him will grow because no one else will be what he can be in that moment. No one else will be what he can be in that moment because no one else has suffered the way he has suffered. And when we share in his sufferings, he joins us. He says, I'm with you. I love you. Be steadfast. I'm proud. He strengthens us. He gives us endurance. But there's an intimacy that's formed through suffering among the people of God that is not formed in any other way. Have you noticed the people with the deepest relationship with Jesus that you've ever known are probably people who have suffered? They're people who have suffered. Don't run from it. It's four ways that this text tells us to grow our unrivaled affection for Jesus. Let me point out, by the way, that all of Scripture... All of scripture is pointing to ways to have unrivaled affection for Jesus. This is just 11 verses. So these aren't the only four ways that happens. They're just the four ways that that are talked about in this text. But the word of God is the very embodiment of the character and nature of Jesus on the page. Therefore, all of it points us to the word of God who is Jesus so that we might have an unrivaled affection for him. So church family, Now we come to the table of the one who has justified us by faith through the work that we now celebrate in communion. So if you grabbed your elements, if you didn't, you can make your way to the back there and and grab the elements as we come to the table now. Let me remind you of two things and then let me just get out of the way and give you a, a few moments to reflect. The first thing I need to remind you of is if you're not in Christ, don't partake of the elements today. And the reason I tell you that is because we're partaking of these as a proclamation of our belief proclamation of our faith we believe that through his blood shed for us through his body given for us that we have eternal life forgiveness of sins and if you don't believe that yet we want you to consider it we want you to weigh it but we don't want you to say something with your actions that isn't true yet in your mind and in your heart so just use this now as a time to reflect if you're in Christ Jesus whether you're part of this church regularly it's your first time here if you are in him this table is for you we welcome you to it and we'd encourage you now, as Christ, as Paul writes us in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, to weigh ourselves as we come now, or to let God examine us. Part of our work here is to say this work has given us forgiveness of sins, your work on the cross, Jesus, and that alone. Now, is there anything in me that is displeasing to you? Is there anything preventing unrivaled affection for you in me? That's what we're to weigh now, each one of us to come to the table. So let's take a few moments to do that and then we'll partake of the elements together.